If, uh, if I've never met you, my name's Josh. I'm on the college team here. And uh, two things, two very important women in my life, okay? The first one, this is Blair. Guys, breathe it in, take it in. This is, she's 15 months old and she is incredible. She is walking, talking, has a little personality. She knows how to roar like a lion. Next time I teach, I'll show you a video. She can roar like a lion and it's, it'll melt your heart. And then the second, the second girl in my life, my first love, you can give it a little awe, first love, my dog Yankee. I love Yankee. Shout out to Ethan right here with the pass. You guys didn't see that again? Yankee, Yankee is an athlete. Look at this. Yankee is an athlete. That was first try or 50th. I'll let you guys decide. And so those are two very special girls in my life. And what you're thinking right now is probably, that's great. It's great to get to know you a little bit better. Now, how is he going to masterfully, artistically, creatively weave that into his talk? And I'm not. I just put those up there because I wanted to. We're going to dive right in tonight. We got three chapters to cover. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6. We're getting after it tonight. So get your Bibles out. We're going to be flying through three chapters, which is way less than we've covered the last couple of weeks, but it is also still a lot of scripture. So we'll be Judges 6 through 8. And if you've been following along, where we left off was Joshua was commissioned to bring his people into the promised land. And they go in and they conquer and they're in this promised land and the tribes of Israel kind of each get their own allotment of land and they each have their land, but they're still living kind of in enemy territory. There's still different nations that are present. And so what has happened is there's this cycle has begun and they call it the cycle of judges. And what this cycle looks like is the people of Israel are faithfully serving Yahweh, the one true God, but they have fallen into the practices and the idols of their culture. And so they betray God and they are following these false gods. And what happens is, is Israel's enslaved to these nations, to these people. And in a moment of humility and brokenness and despair, they cry out to Yahweh, please, please, please save us. And Yahweh listens and he hears them and he sends a judge that will go and, and go into this enemy territory and free them and deliver them from, uh, from this enemy nation. And we see this cycle continuing again and again and again and again. Because we'll find this peace, they'll find this deliverance, and then a few years later, they'll forget about that. They'll forget what God did, and they'll go right back into the same rebellion and idolatry and sin. And so we pick up a couple of chapters, and the cycle has already taken place a few times, and we pick up with a judge by the name of Gideon. And so if you have your Bibles, it's gonna be in Judges 6, starting in verse 12. Here's what it says. 
Now, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon replies, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now we're gonna see a few things. There's this dialogue that's gonna take place between Yahweh and Gideon. But what's really important to notice, and some of us when we're just reading at surface level probably will miss this, but it's kind of a little more obvious up on the screen. You see the word Lord in all caps. And then here in verse 13, you see the word Lord in no caps, in lowercase, no caps. And what, what they're doing, these are two different Greek words that's happening here. When you see Lord in all caps, this is Yahweh. Like this is the personal name for God. This is the, the name that God revealed to Moses when he commissioned Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. Like this is the one true God. And so when you see all caps, Lord, this is Yahweh. But then when you see no caps, Lord, it is Adonai. It's the, it's the Hebrew word Adonai, which is a, a sign of respect and ruler, as a ruler and leadership. But it's not the personal name that God gave his people. So there's very, something very subtle going on here. Yahweh himself sends an angel and speaks to Gideon and says, Gideon, the Lord is with you. Yahweh is with you. And we're going to see Gideon doesn't buy it. Gideon's going to have a few doubts before he can kind of get on board with this. And his first doubt is, okay, if you really are Yahweh and not just some other ruler, not just some other God, if you really are the one true God that our families have been talking about for years and years and years and years, how could we possibly be back in slavery again? Aren't you the God that got us out of slavery? And so if you really are Yahweh, how could we be in this mess that we're in right now? And so his first doubt is the same doubt we still wrestle with today. If you really are this good God that my ancestors talked about, that my parents told me about, how can all this evil be happening right now? If you're really this good God, then why are we in slavery? Why are, why are we being oppressed by the Midianites? It's the same question that we ask today, whether you are in a season right now where something is either happening to you personally, or maybe your family's going through something, your friends are going through something, or maybe you just look around the world and you just see so much violence and evil and injustice and oppression. And you come here at the church and we're talking about this great God and you're like, I don't see it. I'm sorry, but I don't see it. How can God be good? For me, this was last semester. I talked to you guys 
a little bit about this if you were here last semester, but my wife and I walked through a miscarriage. And, and I wanted to trust God. I, my, my, my job was to teach people about how good God is. And I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't believe it. And I wanted to, and I was trying, and, and these doubts just came. God, I, 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 I've seen your goodness. I've heard about your goodness, but it's hard for me to believe it right now. Maybe that's you. Look how, look how Yahweh responds. It says, the Lord turned to Gideon and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Notice what he says and what he doesn't say. God doesn't give some theology, some, some systematic theology or doctrine of, of why he can still be good. He doesn't try to defend himself. He listens to Gideon's doubts, listens to Gideon's frustration, and reminds him of his presence. He says, go, am I not sending you? But the doubts keep coming. Gideon replies, pardon me, Adonai, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. If you don't know your like ancient Israel tradition, when the, when the land in the, in the promised land kind of got split up, the land that was going to the tribe of Manasseh got split in two. Some people decided to go on the east side of the Jordan. Some people decided to go on the west side of the Jordan. So this tribe was cut in two. And you'll see all throughout the Old Testament in the prophets, it's often called the half tribe of Manasseh. So if you're building like this A team, like varsity team, Manasseh is your last choice. And not only that, he says, even in my own family, I'm the, I'm the weakest in my family. When we have family picnics and play dodgeball, Gideon's like, I'm last picked. Like I, I'm, I'm on the, I'm riding the bench. So like, let's, let's put this problem of good and evil aside for a second. Just practically, why would you choose me? And I think it's another doubt that runs through my head, maybe runs through your head when we think about like the Great Commission and, and God wanting to use us to go and make disciples of all nations. And we're like, ah, does he, if only he knew everything. Or I just got asked to lead this Bible study. I'm volunteering. I'm leading a cell group. I'm volunteering on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights in my fraternity sorority. If they knew, if they knew how broken I was, if they knew the sin in my life, if they knew my fears and doubts and insecurities, there's no way, there's no way they'd let me be a part of what's going on. That was me. I was, I was running a ministry in Dallas and just filled with guilt and shame and insecurity. I'm a fraud. They're going to find out. I've got to have it all together. Why would God want to use someone like me? And here's how Yahweh responds again. It says, Yahweh answers, I 
will be with you. Now, this would have struck Gideon's ear like a drum because all the stories that his parents told him about the faithfulness of Yahweh would have gone from Abraham and Sarah to Moses to Joshua. And the central theme of all those is go and I am with you. Go and I will be with you. Fear not for I am with you. Be strong and courageous for I am with you. I am Yahweh, your Adonai. Go. And I'll be with you and you'll strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon leaps up, heaves up one last Hail Mary doubt. He replies, let's just pretend that this is all true. Let's just pretend you chose me for a reason. Let's just pretend you are Yahweh. I need you to prove it. He says, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. He says, prove it. Show me that it's actually you, Yahweh. Show me that it's the one true God, the same God that let my, my ancestors out of Egypt. And I think if we're being honest, we have these, these same doubts. There's moments or even seasons of our life as Christians that we, that we wrestle. Is this, is this real or has this all just been some sort of coincidence. Can this really be true? And so what I want us to notice, the first lesson I want us to learn from Gideon and from this passage is when we look at his questions, when we look at his doubts, notice what Gideon does and notice how God responds. Gideon brings those doubts to God one at a time. And it feels like each time he brings a doubt, he's taking a baby step forward. Each time he's, he's being vulnerable and real with where he is, he's just taking a step, a, a tiny step towards faithfulness and towards obedience. And then notice how God responds. He never once rebukes Gideon, never once makes him feel guilty or shameful for having questions, for having doubts, for wrestling. He listens and instead of giving answers, he reminds him of his presence. He reminds Gideon of his presence. And he answers. Gideon says, prove it, God. Is this really you? And he says, go and get, get an animal to be sacrificed. Prepare it and come bring it to me. And so he brings this animal to be sacrificed. And it says, the angel of the Lord just touched it. The angel of the Lord just touched it and immediately was consumed with fire. Again, bells are going off in Gideon's head. Fire. God spoke through Moses, through fire. God led the whole nation of Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of fire. Fire was a symbol and a sign of God's presence, that it really was Yahweh. So God answers Gideon in his doubts. He gives him this sign, 
fire consumes this sacrifice. And it says, when Gideon saw and realized that this was the angel of Yahweh, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Yahweh, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And so God meets Gideon in his doubts, in his fears, in his insecurities. And he takes another step forward. And God says, go and tear down these altars that you have built to the false gods. This altar that you built to Baal, go and destroy it. And almost immediately fear and doubt comes back again. And it says, Gideon takes that step forward, but it says he was afraid. And so he did it at night when nobody could see him. And then he goes and hides. And when everyone wakes up in the morning and they see that this altar, very likely in the center of the town, is destroyed, they know it's Gideon and they go looking for him to kill him. And out of fear, he's hiding. And it's actually his dad that has to step in and advocate for him and says, hey, listen, if Baal is this great God that you worship, let him come and contend with us. Let him come and fight us. Don't fight his battle for, for him. Let him come. And for my Texas people in the room, this is like, this like, hey, Baal's real? Prove it. Come and take it. And it's like this, this revival, this revolution starts with the people of Israel. People are like, yes. Yeah. Like, come on, Baal. You don't, you don't got it. Come and take it. And so Gideon continues to see God showing up. And it's just these baby steps of faithfulness and a lot of fear and a lot of doubt. And so as this army is assembling, this, this army of Israel that's getting ready to go and face Midian, Gideon says to God, just hold on one more second. I know you had this crazy sign where fire consumed everything. I know you've been talking to me. But if you're going to save Israel by my hand, as you promised, like, look, I just, just give me one more sign. That's it. One more sign. And then I'll trust you 100%. I'll never doubt again. It's going to be great. So I'm going to go ahead and put this like piece of wool, this, this fleece. I'm going to go put it outside. And when I wake up, I want, there, I want there to be dew on the wool, on the fleece, and the ground around it to be dry. Like, can you do that? I want, I want, I want this to happen. Gideon goes to sleep. He wakes up. And sure enough, there's, there's dew on the, on the fleece, and everywhere around it is dry. And he's like, one more time. Just, what if that was a coming... What if that was a coincidence? Maybe it's a certain type of fleece, you know? Maybe it's like, like water resistant. Like, like, I don't know. Like, maybe, I don't know. What if? Like, just one more time. And still in his doubts and his fears, he says, how about let's, let's switch it? What if there's dew everywhere? What if there's dew everywhere and the, and the fleece is dry? Dew everywhere, fleece is dry. This time you do this, I'm in. And sure enough, he wakes up the next morning, dew everywhere, 
fleece is dry. He's like, okay, let's do this thing. He takes a step forward. So this first lesson is that if you're in this room and you're struggling with doubts and insecurities and fears, I want you to know first and foremost, that is very, very normal and it's a part of the Christian life. And your doubts, they don't disqualify you. God still hadn't rebuked Gideon for his doubts and he asked for sign and question time and time again. It's not whether or not you have doubts, you're all gonna have doubts. It's what you do with your doubts. Such is the question I have for you. When you do doubt, what do you do? Where do you go? Do you try and stuff them and pretend they don't exist? Oh, good, a good Christian wouldn't doubt. A good Christian wouldn't doubt, so I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just pretend I have the answers to all those things. Are you gonna get cynical about it? Or are you gonna take those to God, knowing that he's a God that listens? And you're gonna bring people around you and you're gonna bring those to your friends and, and bring those doubts in. Your doubts don't disqualify you. And so this, this army of Israel is starting to grow. They're like, okay, we're, we're doing this thing. Gideon is leading the charge. He keeps taking one baby step of faithfulness at a time. And he somehow, somehow assembles 32,000 warriors, 32,000 soldiers, which sounds like a lot. But we'll find out later that Midian has at least 135,000, four to one. And so they're like, okay, we're gonna be faithful. Yahweh said he's gonna take us. We're gonna get the victory, so we're gonna go. And so he assembles 32,000 and the Lord stops him. Yahweh says to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me saying my own strength has saved me. He's saying 32,000, I know that's four to one, but there's a chance that you would win the battle, that you would win this war and Israel would think, wow, we didn't win because of God. We won because we're so great because we were the superior fighters that day. And so God says, any, any warriors that are trembling, tell them to go home. And very quickly, it goes from 32,000 to 10,000, from four to one to 13 to one. It's like, okay. Put yourself in Gideon's shoes for a second, a, a man that's already riddled with doubt and fear. Okay, 13 to one, that's, the odds are not in our favor here, but Yahweh said he's gonna be with us. And so we'll take our 10,000 and we'll, and we'll march on. He takes a baby step of faithfulness. But Yahweh's not done yet. He says to Gideon, sorry, bro. He says, there are still too many men Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. And so 
Yahweh thins them out from 10,000 all the way down to 300. From 10,000 all the way down to 300. Imagine the fear, the doubts, and the anxiety. I think that's like 400 to one. There's no way. So they're getting prepared to do this battle. 300 versus 135,000 Midianite warriors. And it says that during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. He's, God's like, this is go time. Like it's happening. The battle's about to begin. But look how sweet Yahweh is to Gideon. He says, but if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. Notice this time Gideon doesn't ask for a sign. Gideon doesn't ask for Yahweh to answer his questions or for, for fire to come up or for anything like that. But God, knowing Gideon's own weakness, says, hey, it's go time and we got this. But if you're still afraid, I have you. If you're still afraid, go to the edge of the camp and just listen. And so him and his servant, Pure, they go to the edge of the camp and they hear these two Midianite soldiers talking to each other. One is telling about this dream where this random loaf of bread comes and like takes out an entire army. The spinning loaf of bread. And the guy's like, I don't know what this means. And the other soldier goes, oh no. This isn't good. Surely this means Gideon and his army is gonna take us out. I don't know how he got to that translation, but he's like, this means, this means that Gideon and his army are gonna win. And it says that Gideon heard this and he, and he worshiped. And he goes back to the camp and he says, y'all, it's go time. 300, we got this. And a lot of y'all, when you hear about like 300 warriors, 300 soldiers, you think of this, you're like, here we go, Sparta, we got this, like the best of the best is about to be this epic battle that takes, that, that goes down, like Lord of the Rings type battle. And yet this is not what we see at all. God commands these 300, instead of taking shields and swords and spears, hey, I want you to have in one hand a trumpet and in your other hand a lantern, like a torch. It's like, God, you know I only have two hands. You created this. One hand a trumpet and the other hand a torch. We're 400 to one and you're sending us in the battle with a lantern, like a, a torch and a trumpet. And this whole time, we're just seeing God do the strangest thing. He takes the weakest tribe. 
He takes the weakest member of the weakest family of the weakest tribe, and he narrows them down. He thins them out. He takes them from 32,000 to 10,000, down to 300. And then he takes all weapons out of their hands and says, here you go. Here's some light and, a, and some music in case you get bored. And he's making them weaker and weaker and weaker. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why does God choose the weakest? Why does God continually choose the weakest? What we've seen so far from Genesis 1 all the way to Judges is God continues to choose the ones you wouldn't expect. And just so you know, spoiler alert, when we get to the rest of the Bible, he's going to do the exact same thing. God continues to choose the weakest. And I think Paul, thousands of years later, says it better than I could. In 2 Corinthians 12, it's one of my favorite passages ever. He says that he received this thorn in his flesh. Now, what that thorn was, I have some theories, but there's a lot of different things out there. And so come talk to me after if you want to know my theory about what the thorn in his flesh was, but it could have been persecution. It could have been a disability. It could have been a sin struggle, whatever it was. It says that God gave him this thorn so that he wouldn't be conceited. He gave it to humble him. And Paul begs, Lord, please remove this thorn. Please remove this. Please remove this thorn. And you know God's answer? No, not going to. And here's why. It says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is all that you need. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Y'all, please, if you've been asleep the last 25 minutes, please hear this. This is the whole sermon. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. The reason I choose the weakest, one is because y'all are all weak, myself included. But also, my power is more on display the weaker you are. And so Paul has the right response. This should be our response. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight. He's, he literally says, for Jesus's sake, I enjoy weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul gets it. He says, weakness is the way forward. Weakness is the whole point of the Christian life. Sanctification is not about sinning less. Sanctification is about depending on Jesus more. Y'all hear that? And so if dependence is the goal, weakness is actually an advantage. If dependence is the goal, weakness is actually in your favor, which is why Paul can say, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weakness. 
And so if that's true, why is it so freaking hard for us to show weakness? Why does everything inside of us rebel and kick against weakness? Like, no, I can't let them know who I really am. I can't let them see what I'm struggling with. I can't let them know my fears, my doubts, my insecurities. What would they do if they knew? Y'all, what they're saying here is that when we do that, when we try and grit it out and do everything on our own strength, our own reliance, self-dependent, or even independence, we're actually losing out. We're missing out on life, joy, and power that is freely being offered to us right now. Because we think, I've got to have it all together. I've got to figure it out. I've got to do this on my own. And that's the opposite of the Christian life. So we need to boast in our weakness. Weakness is the way forward. And so this is the scene that we're left with. 300 soldiers with with lanterns, with torches, and with trumpets. Facing off against 135,000 soldiers with swords and spears and shields. And Gideon blows the trumpet and he says, for the Lord, for Yahweh. And they all smash these little lanterns that they have and blow the trumpets. And it says that Midian is just in complete chaos and they just start killing each other. Like the Midianites are just killing their own people. In fact, they kill like 100,000 of their own people. And then whoever's left, they flee. They realize that they have lost the battle. And so Gideon and Manasseh, they chase, them out, chase after them. And all the other tribes, they join them and they take out the Midianites. And as they're celebrating this incredible victory, a million to one odds of winning, they're celebrating. They turn to Gideon and they say, rule over us, Gideon, be our king. We want you to be king, and then we want your sons to be kings and your grandchildren. We want you to be the king. Rule over us because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And now something has been turning and growing and refining in Gideon this whole time. And he has recognized his doubts and has recognized his weakness. And he gives the perfect example. It says, but Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you because the Lord will rule over you. Yahweh is king. Yahweh gets the glory. Yahweh is the one who got the victory. He is king. God is gets the glory. That's a part of us boasting in our weakness so that people could see his glory. Now, if you're cynical, like I am, the first question that comes to my mind is, why should we care about God's glory? Why should we care about God getting credit? Why should we care about his glory? Why do we have to make it all about God? 
God. Isn't that a little prideful? Does God have that big of an ego that he needs to command us to continue to glorify him, to make it about him, to look to him? And the best illustration I can, I can use, it's not a perfect illustration, but the best I could use to maybe paint this picture of why it's so important for God to get the glory. When I was in middle school, I, lived, I grew up in LA. We'd go to the beach uh, a lot. And my older brother loved to body surf. He was in high school, loved to body surf. I was actually, full transparency, terrified of the ocean. I never told anybody about that but I hated not knowing what was like under the water. And so I was kind of like hanging around on the sand and doing my own thing. And my older brother, Eric, was out there body surfing. And waves were coming in, waves were coming out. And all of a sudden I just hear this yell, help! And he's flailing out there. And it's like in a second, he went from 50 feet out to 200 feet out. And he got, got caught in this riptide. If you've ever been out in a riptide, you know they're strong and they're almost, they're so hard to get out of them. He's being pulled away. He's being dragged farther and farther and farther out to sea. And luckily the lifeguard saw it immediately, grabs his little board and starts swimming out there. Starts swimming out there and he's just going farther and farther and farther away. And the closer he gets, he keeps yelling to my brother, Eric, look at me. Look at me, swim to me, come to me, look at me. As he gets closer, he goes, grab my hand. Look at me, I'm right here, grab my hand. And in that moment, it would be completely ridiculous for Eric to look at this lifeguard and say, oh, look at you, isn't that, isn't that a little prideful? Isn't that a little boastful? Why do you gotta make this all about you, Mr. Lifeguard? It's a little, this guy's got an ego. As, as ridiculous. The reason he's yelling, look at me, come to me, follow me. It's because he knows in that moment, left to himself, Eric would just be, would get dragged farther and farther and farther when there's no way he could save himself. And so the most loving thing that that lifeguard could do is to get all of his attention onto him. Grab my hand, look at me, come to me. And in the same way, when God is at the center of the stage, when God is saying, look at me, come to me, grab my hand, it's not out of pride or arrogance. It's because he knows left to yourself, you would just keep getting dragged farther and farther and farther away. And he's the only one that could ever save you. And so I wish we could end this story on this high note, Gideon saying, yes, Yahweh's king, he's the ruler. But literally the next verse, the next verse, Gideon says, hey, Yahweh's king, and if y'all have any earrings or jewelry or anything like that, go ahead, give them to me, and let's make a statue so that people can worship. He does the exact same sin that Aaron did generations earlier. 
And it says that Gideon and his whole family and all of Manasseh ended up worshiping false idols, rebelling against God because of this statue. And so we thought this story was, it was so good. God saved the day. He delivered his people. And a verse later, we're back into the cycle. Israel falls into sin and adultery and they're enslaved. And we're gonna see this cycle again and again and again. And then they're gonna get a king and we see this cycle again and again and again. And the Old Testament is gonna end with 400 years of silence. And after 400 years, the cycle ends. And instead of sending a judge or a human king, God himself takes on weakness. God himself puts on human flesh. This cycle that could not end with a human king or a human judge, God ends by sending Jesus in weakness to die in a very humble and humiliating way in a way where it would seem like the odds were stacked against him. But in the end, there was victory, not just from a people group, but from sin and death. And now he he looks at us and he says, come to me. Your doubts, I want them. Your weakness, that's a part of it, boast in it. My power will be made perfect in weakness. Just come to me. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Lord, if it's the first time we've ever recognized it, Lord, I I just would confess here that on our own, we are weak and unable to save. And so we thank you that you came to save us. And so I pray as we continue to worship tonight that we would look at your goodness, we would look at your glory, and we'll be able to celebrate all that you've done and all that you'll continue to do. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.